Hello, and welcome to Lines from Loganberry, from Loganberry Books. We are a local independent bookshop located in the historic Larchmere neighborhood of beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. With this podcast, we hope to stay connected to you as we weather the coronavirus storm together. Each week, we will help you discover new books, rave about our latest favorite reads, and check in with our friendly bookstore cat Otis to learn more about what's going on in our humble shop. For more information about Loganberry Books, visit our website at loganberrybooks.com or check our social media at Loganberry Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On today's episode, we feature a talk by geologist and former NASA astronaut Catherine D. Sullivan, the first American woman to walk in space. In her new book, Handprints on Hubble, an astronaut's story of invention, Catherine details her experience working on the team that launched the Hubble Space Telescope in 1990. Marcy Frumker of the International Women's Air and Space Museum hosts and joins in for a brief Q&A at the end of the program. Thank you for listening and enjoy. My name is Marcy Frumker and I'm from the International Women's Air and Space Museum here in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, Dr. Catherine Sullivan is one of the first American woman astronauts. And she was selected in the 1978 group of astronauts who really became the trailblazers and the leaders of the American Space Shuttle program. And uh, on the first of her three missions, Dr. Sullivan became the first American woman to walk in space. And interestingly, uh, when we just had the first all-female spacewalk back in October 2019, uh, Jessica Meir and Christina Cook were the two astronauts who did that. Um, part of Christina Cook's spacesuit backpack that has all the life support systems uh, had the same number backpack that Dr. Sullivan's had. And that was the suit that she, the backpack that she wore some 35 years earlier. So that's kind of amazing that that went full circle. Dr. Sullivan flew on two other shuttle missions, the mission to launch the Hubble Space Telescope in 1990, and that's the main focus of her book, Handprints on Hubble. And she was payload commander for a nine-day mission in 1992, and that was called the Atlas I mission that focused on measuring atmospheric chemistry. And Dr. Sullivan was most recently in the news uh, last summer when she became the first woman to reach the Challenger Deep which is more than 35,800 feet below the surface at a depth of about six miles below. So you could really say that Dr. Sullivan is an adventurer above and below. And uh, Dr. Sullivan is one of the important women in aerospace uh, that the International Women's Air and Space Museum seeks to showcase through our museum. And our nonprofit museum opened in Centerville, Ohio, which is near Dayton, back in 1986 and moved to Cleveland in 1998. In fact, at our grand opening in 1999, I was the lucky person that got to introduce Dr. Sullivan as our keynote speaker back when she was the CEO of COSI in Columbus. And our museum is a free museum since we are in a public building, the Burke Lakefront Airport, and we are uniquely dedicated to the preservation and history of women in all aspects of aviation and aerospace. And in a normal year, of course, this hasn't been a normal year, as everyone knows, uh, we have a lot of programming and events uh, for both adults and children. And uh, we still are doing virtual events and other things we'll be doing later in the year. And our website is uh, www.iwasm.org. And we're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So Dr. Sullivan is going to be talking first uh, about her book, Handprints on Hubble, an astronaut's story of invention. That's about her life as a NASA astronaut and her remarkable work on the space shuttle mission that launched the Hubble Space Telescope. So I'm going to pass it over to you, Dr. Sullivan. Well, thanks, Marcy. It's great to be with all of you tonight. Thank you all for taking some time uh, on this, whatever day it is, Thursday evening. The weeks do become a bit of a blur when we don't have the, the cadence of our everyday outside life to keep us anchored a bit, or they have for me at any rate. What I thought I would do is run through a couple of quick slides to give you a sense of background of the book, the style it's written in, one or two of the fun stories that I tell along the way, and some of my motivation and how it came about in the first place, because it's a, it's a story that surprised me as it was unfolding, to be honest. Let's start with just a tiny bit of history. 
because this informed uh, and inspired how I went about this book. Uh, this is a painting that was done in 1951 by an artist named Chesley Bonestell. Uh, and it was done for the purpose of illustrating a, a 1952 issue of Collier's Magazine. Uh, that issue was going to feature Werner von Braun's visions for what might happen in the future in space. So let's think about where 1951 sits in things. World War II ended just about six years earlier. The closest thing to a rocket that exists at this time are the, the German V2 rockets. Uh, and they, they did big arcs, they were ballistic arcs. They came nowhere near being able to reach orbit. And yet in 1951, von Braun already is imagining a space station. This is very Arthur C. Clarke style of space station, sort of hub and spoke kind of thing. Um, and you see envisioning people outside in spacesuits working on it, capsules or, or pods, you know, docking in and out of it. This craft on the left, the black winged craft on the left, is described in the article as a spaceship that's been tailor designed and purpose built just for getting from Earth to this orbiting outpost. So it is a shuttle. It's going to shuttle back and forth from the Earth to the space station. You can see some astronauts working here. Another one of those little pods, apparently sort of moving things to and from either the station or this gizmo and the shuttle itself. And so let's focus on this gizmo uh, because this is described in the article as a telescope. You can kind of see the front mirror up here and uh, the advantages of putting a telescope above the atmosphere to be free of clouds and turbulence were obvious for a long time. First, first written about a well-known point in time it was written about is way back in 1929. Uh, and here's another astronaut, looks like maybe using some equipment from this module to do some work on the telescope. So 1951, barely after World War I, World War II, excuse me, Europe is still lying in ruins. Uh, Sputnik is six years away. Gagarin's flight uh, is 10 years away. Don Glenn's, uh, Alan Shepard's flight is 11 years away. Uh, and I first met this painting in 1985 when I was on a presidential commission chartering the next 20 some years in US civilian space activities. And what hit me like a thunderbolt was at the time I saw this picture, I had already flown on one of these. It ended up looking different, but it was the same concept. Uh, I, we had the start of one of these on the drawing board. It was gonna turn out to look different than this specific design, but the notion of living and working sustained presence in, in low earth orbit was beginning to happen. Uh, and so I'd already flown on that. This is being built and I had just been assigned to the crew that was gonna carry this thing to orbit. This painting was done in the year I was born. And by my mid thirties, these notions that had been the stuff of dreams, probably dreams back to the first time any human being looked up to the stars and science fiction from the first moment people began to commit their stories to pen and paper had accelerated and begun becoming true in the span of, of just 30 years, a small portion uh, of my lifetime. And that really hit home with me in, in a huge, huge way. It, it taught me a lot in an, in an instant about the, the vision, visionary characteristic, the imagination and creativity that goes into engineering that you could see so far around the corner and not just dimly imagine, but pretty vividly imagine what shape a future might take decades ahead of when the technical ability to realize that actually existed. Well, it was not many years before I encountered that picture that I had this moment, of course. This is the day uh, that our class uh, of 35 new astronauts was introduced to the world in Houston in 1978. In fact, if I have my dates right, I think it was 1978, uh, the year 1978, like yesterday, that we were announced to the world just after the inauguration, or, or just after what is inauguration day in presidential years. Uh, here I am standing next to the spacesuit, and you'll probably recognize Sally Ride on the far right. All of you Ohioans will recognize Judy Resnick, uh, the Akron girl here. Uh, we have also Anna Fisher with the yellow turtleneck. Ray Seddon, the lone blonde amongst us, and Shannon Lucid. Uh, so we were a really interesting class, uh, 35 new people 
uh, 20 mission specialists, that's what all six of us were, coming to the program with expertise in science and engineering, and 15 test pilots. But the media looked at us in a very interesting, amusing, uh, slightly annoying and different way, because to the media, there were six women, three African-Americans and one Asian-American. They were, those 10 people were novelties. There had never been astronauts that looked like that before. The test pilot guys in our class pretty quickly concluded that the simple way to describe our group was 10 interesting people and 25 standard white guys. And as I tell in the book, the day we were introduced to the public, it was a 30 or 40 minute you know, ceremony name by name and a little bit of a biographical sketch. And then we were basically turned loose to the media for essentially however many interviews they all wanted through well through the East Coast primetime news hour. Uh, the 10 of us that were strange uh, were locked in interviews well past the East Coast prime news hours. And the other 25 standard white guys were off to the gym or the bar or wherever they wanted to do uh, about 15 minutes after the formal part of the program ended. Uh, and that became a running joke with our class you know, ever thereafter. So this was 1978. Of course, in 1983, Sally Ride was tapped to become the first of us six that would fly. And just over a year later, uh, we were tapped to fly together on a mission called 41G. It's just a code for what fiscal year you flew in and what space shuttle you were flying on. And this is another one of the stories I tell in the book. This is launch day. It's October 5th, 1984. Uh, here's the hatch to the space shuttle Challenger right behind us. We're in the little vestibule or you know porch outside the space shuttle, 185 feet above the launch pad, waiting our turn to get strapped in. What are we doing here? And the newspapers that covered our flight the morning after our launch commonly featured this picture of us. Kathy Sullivan and Sally Ride synchronized their watches before boarding the Space Shuttle Challenger for their mission. What actually was happening is a little different. The way the seats were arranged inside the shuttle dictated that Sally and I would be the last two people to climb in and get strapped in, uh, which meant we had some time to just sort of idle around in this vestibule. And after a few minutes of doing that, we began to feel awkward with all the cameras that we knew were watching us, just the two women left in the vestibule. And here we are standing around looking like we're just doing idle chatter and have nothing whatsoever to do. Uh, and then the light bulb went on and we looked at each other and said, you know, they always synchronize their watches before a big mission in the movies. Maybe we should synchronize our watches. So we are actually faking the synchronization here. We did nothing whatsoever to our watches. And what we're actually chatting about at this moment is whether we've drawn this out long enough or can carry it a little further. And, and you know, what do you think Walter Cronkite's saying right about now? And uh, do you think we have them fooled? So we were truly delighted when we landed seven days later and found all those headlines on front page, page pictures that confirmed we had suckered pretty well everyone who was watching that day. It wasn't but a few weeks after I landed from that first flight. I do talk some more in the book about the events and moments on that first flight, but just to move along here so we have time for discussion and question. It was not long after we landed from that first flight that I was tapped again by my bosses for a second mission, and it was this one. So now you see the space shuttle that you know and you're familiar with. It's how different it is than Werner von Braun's black-winged craft. And what had become the space telescope and had by this point gotten named for Edwin Hubble. Uh, large, very large beast, almost completely fills the shuttle's cargo bay. And that was so that it could have the largest possible primary mirror. It's 2.4 meters diameter on Hubble, which is essentially eight feet, plus or minus tiny little bits. Solar rays to power it, antennas to send the data back and forth to the ground. This barn door kind of thing at the front here is basically the lens cap to you know, shield it from debris or contamination while we are carrying it up and have give you the opportunity to close it if the telescope is ever going to swing past direct line of sight to the sun. So when I was assigned to this in late 84, very early 1985, the launch date was scheduled for October 1986. And the one line of instruction my boss boss gave me was, big space telescope scheduled for October 86, we're supposed to be able to maintain and repair it in orbit for 15 years. And it doesn't seem any of the tools exist to really do that. 
So you get with Bruce McCandless, the other guy who's assigned to be the spacewalker on the deployment mission, and you, you guys make sure we've got the tools we need to do repairs if, if it comes to that. And so off Bruce and I went, uh, Hubble, when we first met it, when I first met it, looked like this. This is in Sunnyvale, California, in this hyper clean room. All of these things you see here are big air pumps and fans. The air moves smoothly from this back wall, which is the size of a basketball court tipped up on its end. And it moves down through this building 100 feet. If some particle of dust managed to get in the building up here, despite all of the high efficiency filters, it would not settle to the earth. It would get all the way to the end of the building before it had any chance of reaching the ground. Uh, you see people in bunny suits here to give you a sense of the scale of Hubble and the scale of the building, uh, and also give you a sense of how, what great lengths we went to to make sure that we didn't bring you know, molecules of aftershave or perfume or bits of fiber from our clothing into this room where Hubble was being assembled and introduce any risk that the mirror could be contaminated. I, the process of getting dressed up in all this garb, I can tell you, was one of the most challenging acrobatic exercises I've ever done. Uh, it's a good thing no one filmed it because it would have made fabulous comedy, I'm sure. And I talk a bit of, about that. It, it reminded me of getting ready to do a spacewalk, uh, but even more carefully inspected by multiple sets of eyes before we were allowed to set foot in this super clean room. Hubble, the idea for Hubble, as I mentioned, was sort of first floated in 1929. It came back up again in stronger force in 1946. So even closer to the end of World War II uh, than the painting. And one of the scientists who'd worked on the war effort uh, was asked to think forward about what should the United States do with this big science mobilization that helped win the war? You should just let it all decay and go away? Should we turn it to new purposes? How should we organize for it? And one of those scientists was Lyman Spitzer, an astronomer from Princeton. And he picked up right where Herman Obarth had been in 1929 and said, it's now time. The technology, the engineering capacity is, is it, it is now in hand. We could build a large telescope and put it above the atmosphere. And he went on to describe how revolutionary that would be for astronomy. It took another decade or so for other astronomers to really begin to believe him enough and have enough confidence in rocketry and spaceflight that they would endorse putting so much money into building such a large instrument. And so engineers began to really seriously think about how do you do that? How would you make that idea come real? And how would you make it operate and last for long enough that it could be scientifically productive enough to be worth the investment? You know, when you build an observatory on a mountaintop, you put up the building and you put up the structure that holds the mirrors, and then teams of astronomers come and go for decades with new instruments all the time, whole new science campaigns. So the, the observatory on the mountaintop is a fixed thing that lasts a long time. And the instruments and the human teams that are doing astronomy can change and change and change again. Could we do something like that with a telescope in orbit? And this is the engineer's answer, or the engineer's way of answering that question, yes, you can. Uh, and, and this is an idea that originates in 1965. So Yuri Gagarin and Alan Shepard and John Glenn have only just flown. There have been about three spacewalks done combined between Russia and the United States, and two of them were almost disastrous. And yet the engineers imagined a layout for this telescope that put all of the equipment you might need to repair on the outside, easily accessible, basically behind cabinet doors, all of the optics safely on the inside, and are already thinking ahead. You can tell by these yellow handrails, which are always the symbol of where astronauts in spacesuits might uh, hold on to move their way around. We could make it maintainable by laying it out this way and using common tools. Everyone used the same bolt. Everyone used the same screw so that you know, one wrench and one screwdriver can do a lot of things. That idea began again in the 1960s. And I, I did not appreciate this until I was doing the research for the book, because again, there are no engineers. There really are almost no engineers in 1965 that have any substantial expertise on actual scientific spaceships and rockets. There sort of kind of haven't been any yet. 
So where do you get engineers that can figure out these kind of ideas? What kind of background, what kind of training? How did these guys do this? Because they didn't come to this able to say, oh yeah, I did one of those before. Uh, and I, I wanted another motivation in writing the book was I wanted to bring the story of some of those remarkable engineers into the foreground. Uh, I've never encountered their names in any other recounting of Hubble's history, but they're the engineers that made it possible to build Hubble and to keep it alive right till today, which is twice the lifetime that the engineers ever promised. Uh, and they all, they came from, they were the car freaks, they were the motorcycle guys, one of them was a, a locomotive freak. So they had a lot of passion and hands-on experience for how things worked, none of it in the space arena. And they did a lot of learning on the job to make this come true. Well, our boss was right when he said, I don't think the equipment's ready for repairs to be possible. It really wasn't. And so Bruce and I set out to work with, again, bevy of engineers to drive that stuff forward. One part of that was pretty rough choreography. This is a scene in the large water tank in Huntsville, Alabama. It's not deep enough. You see part of a shuttle cargo bay here and the bottom part of the telescope here. This pool is not deep enough to stack the front of the telescope on top of the bottom. So we had to do a little improvising and move it off to the side. But you've got, this is geometrically quite faithful to the real telescope. Um, this, these little bars are here. This little tube is here. This little milk stand is there. That's one of a replica of the real antenna and so on and so forth. So in these exercises, we were choreographing and confirming this yellow handrail lets me get up to where I need to work if I have to unbolt this antenna by hand. It's supposed to unlatch automatically and have motors that will drive it out. But if any of that doesn't work, we're gonna have two astronauts with wrenches and screwdrivers that can go do it by hand. Similarly, the, the picture on the right is, is taken basically at this back end of the telescope. That's where four refrigerator sized scientific instruments are mounted. And here Bruce and I are again, checking out the choreography. That's, that's me with my feet planted in this foot restraint. So my body will hold still and I can move my upper body without tumbling around. And Bruce is anchored below me. This is a, a replica, a mock-up of one of those refrigerator sized boxes. And in this case, these are the two handles that the engineers designed to put on the box. And we found we, we couldn't get it in and out safely with just those two handles. So we had started working with them to improvise and experiment with, suppose we put a handle like this. Does that, does that give us enough purchase to move this thing safely around? Countless, 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 tens, dozens of sessions in the pool like this refining and correcting and testing new ideas to see that we could get everything done. So that's sort of the macro picture. You get to the detailed picture, you've got to be sure that the tools you need, the pliers, the wrenches, they need to actually fit on and work on the actual real telescope. In, in 1984 and 85, we had had three space shuttle missions that went up to repair or retrieve satellites that had gotten broken or stranded in orbit. Those, those three missions, the satellite had not been designed for maintenance, but since it would have been a write-off if you didn't try, NASA went up to try to salvage them. And in all three cases, because you had to design the equipment that you would need without having the actual satellite in front of you, in all three cases, one critical tool did not work on the satellite, and usually because something about the size of this little cap on the left uh, existed on the real satellite but did not exist on the drawing that you used to build your tools. And so with Hubble, Bruce and I knew we have to make sure it never, ever, ever happens that an astronaut gets up to Hubble to do a repair and finds out the tool doesn't fit or she can't reach it or you know, the tool isn't strong enough to do what it needs to do. So in these two pictures, you see uh, this very unique purpose-built set of pliers that we designed for Hubble and basically a, a, a space version ratchet wrench that we have taken out to California. This is the real telescope. These are my hands. That's Bruce. That's me. Every single tool, every one of 100 plus tools was taken out to Hubble before we took it to orbit and proven and tested and checked on basically every single connector and every single bolt 
to make sure that we could promise everyone who came after us, uh, you're never going to find one of these tools does not work. I talk a little more about the iterations and challenges that went into figuring out this little puzzle on the left in handprints and Michael Withy, one of the really ingenious tool designers who came up with this oddball set of pliers. Uh, Michael was another motorcycle guy who you know, found his way into spaceflight and designed probably most of the tools in the shuttle and space station tool inventory. Well, we started working in 1985, planning to launch in 1986. But of course, in January 1986, we lost the Space Shuttle Challenger. And the Hubble mission was pretty flexible in its timing. So it kept slipping further and further down the sequence of flights. Uh, and in the end, we launched in April of 1990. So it wasn't until sometime late 89, we reached this very fun milestone of where we get together as a crew and design the emblem that will signify our mission. Uh, we figured we wanted to show the, the shuttle sort of sweeping through this moment dropping off Hubble, heading back to Earth, some stellar you know, cosmological objects in the background and a little star between our names. And then a couple weeks later, about the third week of March, we reach another one of the grand milestones, which is we all go down to the Kennedy Space Center and do a several day, very detailed dress rehearsal of what the day before launch and launch day will be for us. And it's not just us, the flight crew, the entire launch control center at Kennedy is staffed by all the engineers that will be on console on launch day. Uh, Mission Control Center is similarly staffed. And every one of the satellite facilities that has some supporting engineers, it's dress rehearsal day for everybody. One of the fun things we would do as the crew would be turn these you know, patches that we sew onto our flight suits, turn them into nice little embossed, um, enameled, tight lapel pin size pins and take them around and, and give them as uh, thank you gifts to all the engineers that had gotten our spaceship ready and gotten Hubble for launch. And so we had these made up. This is actually one I have left in my collection. And they looked they really, we were really thrilled with how they looked and thought it was clever. Someone thought they'd put this little rocker bar down here, which was supposed to say launch team. And I'm betting someone actually ran this through spell check before they sent it out for to produce a thousand of them. But we got however many bags it takes to contain a thousand of these things to hand around to the launch team. Uh, and of course the NASA official that had ordered them when he realized the mistake wanted to call them all back. And of course, by the time we handed any of them out to the engineers, it was way more coveted than any other pin because of the typo. So I, you'll have a hard time finding these anywhere. And I've never seen any one of these on eBay or for auction. They're, they're so cherished, they're squirreled away in everybody's collection drawer. Well, we, uh, we came back to the Cape on April 24th and launched. Uh, and the next day, April 25th, we finally reached this moment. Steve Hawley has been operating the shuttle's robotic arm all day long, carefully lifting Hubble up, poising it above the cargo bay so that solar rays could unfold and the antennas could unlatch. We had one hiccup during this day. This solar array only came a little ways out and then jammed. And so Bruce and I, at that moment, uh, hopped quickly down to the lower deck and began suiting up for a spacewalk to go out and crank it open by hand. We were racing the clock against uh, the point at which Hubble's batteries would be drained so low that it could really jeopardize the telescope's mission. So this is just moments after Steve released it and just moments before Lauren Shriver is gonna back the shuttle gently away out of this scene to the bottom. And the sad irony of this moment is of the five people aboard, two had worked on Hubble for five years, and those two people were not at these windows watching. We were behind this little round thing that you see at the bottom, because Bruce and I were still locked in the airlock. We had begun to drain the air out of the airlock. So the pressure inside the airlock was now so low, we could not open the hatch back into the shuttle itself, and still too high to open the hatch and go outside. So Bruce and I stared at a blank white wall while this magical moment happened and uh, just had to look at the pictures and the videos of Hubble being deployed like all the rest of you. Well, of course we land, we're thrilled. It's a gorgeous spacecraft. Everything from our end, except for the little hiccup with the solar ray, seemed to go super well. And now we're just waiting to see the spectacular, super clear, amazing images. And of course it was about six or eight weeks before the world realized that was not going to happen.
Uh, Hubble could not see clearly. Many of you, I'm sure, remember this, how ridiculed and criticized NASA was. You see just two of the uh, versions of that that came up at that time. You know, Naked Gun two and a half. Hubble was featured in the sort of hall of disasters. Uh, it was a really awful dark time. And again, the creativity and imagination of engineers and the foresight of building Hubble to be repairable, they finally came together not many months later in a brilliant idea for how to fix this problem. And the essence of that was the team trying to figure out how do we fix the mirror problem had to turn their head the other way around and recognize the problem was not, the challenge was not to fix the mirror. The challenge was to fix the light that bounced off the mirror because the bad news was the mirror, you know, they had messed up. The mirror was the wrong shape, like 1 25th of the thickness of a human hair. That's all the more it was off. That's a big mistake in astronomy. And you're not gonna manage to reshape that mirror once it's on orbit. But the good news was the mistake was very, very precise. And so just like your eye doc can calculate, can measure your eye and calculate the difference between what your eye is doing and what a perfect eye ought to do, and he or she can then craft that difference into contact lenses or eyeglasses, the optical engineers on Hubble could do the same thing. You are gonna, in, in this case, use a set of mirrors rather than a lens and bounce the bad light around a couple times to get it corrected to just what it should have been before and then beam that corrected light into the science instruments. And so that was the main job of this first servicing mission in 1993. And you see here, Jeff Hawley on the end of the robotic arm. So he's being driven around like he's on a cherry picker. He's got a bevy of the tools that uh, we had worked on, uh, ready for, to work with uh, up on the telescope. Story Musgrave is down here getting the, some equipment ready that Jeff will pick up and maneuver up to the telescope and taking out one of those refrigerator sized boxes, sort of sacrificing one of the scientific instruments, a new box was put into its place that had these corrective mirrors. And once it was latched into place, those sprang out to precise locations and intercepted the bad light and converted it back to good light. And here's the proof of the pudding that came out shortly after that mission. This is Hubble before the correction, looking at uh, M100 galaxy. And this is the same galaxy after the correction. That's, that's what Hubble was promised to do at launch. So that's how far short it fell because of the mirror. But it was now fully back to what had been promised at the outset. That's in itself kind of miraculous, but the miracle kind of carries on. Because not only can you fix Hubble in the wake of a mistake or a, a, a failure, but technology continued to improve, right? I mean, Real-to-real -real tape recorders gave way to solid-state recorders. Think about the data speeds on your computer and how much they've changed from 1990 to 1993 to today. Think about how the quality of the, the digital cameras or cell phone cameras that you're using have changed. That technology kept affecting the world of astronomy as well. Continued substantial improvement in what Hubble can do. It's vastly more reliable than it was when we put it into orbit. It's more efficient, even down to things like the solar arrays. 30% smaller produce 20% more energy. And the scientific instruments have continued to evolve and improve as well. And in the servicing missions after the repair, the four other missions happened, they not only pulled boxes out and put new ones in, that's kind of like pull out a spark, bad spark plug and put in a new one, but they really pushed the state of the art of on-orbit repair far beyond what we imagined in 1990. Uh, if, if what we did was akin to changing tires on a car, they kind of moved into the realm that I would call you know, precision hand surgery, actually opening up electronics boxes that, that drive precision optics and replacing circuit cards, really crazy stuff. So if you point Hubble at a really small patch of sky, you imagine holding your arm out at arm's length and a patch of sky about the size of your thumbnail. If you point Hubble at a patch of sky that's about that big, that as far as you can tell has nothing in it, and let, let Hubble stare for a long time, you discover that this is what's in that apparently blank, empty part of the sky. All of this, all these points of light. 
And what really stuns me about the deep field images is that's, you know, I look at it first and I say, look at all those stars. And then I look again, I realize that's a star and that's a star. But every other point of light you see here is a galaxy, like the Milky Way galaxy we live in. So there's a Milky Way, there's a Milky Way, there's a Milky Way, there's a Milky Way. You know, how huge is our galaxy? And here's a whole bin full of hundreds, if not thousands, of galaxies. Hubble today is about a thousand times better telescope than it was when we dropped it off in 1990. And that's all down to the engineers that had that first idea about architecture and how to lay it out in the 1960s. And the engineers that we worked with from 1985 to 1990 to set the foundation of the repair equipment and the tools. And then that same cadre of engineers that carried on, several of them carried on and, and devoted their career from 1990 through to 2009 to just staying with Hubble and working on Hubble and making sure that it could continue to work and could continue to improve and continue to revolutionize astronomy virtually every time we pointed at something. And so the title of my book, just so you know, I've always thought metaphorically, I, kind of, I didn't ever get to fly one of the servicing missions, but I feel like because of the work I did on the early development of the tools, it, it's as if I have a handprint on all of Hubble's discovery. I have a hand in it. Uh, and then I learned as I was doing my research that there are actual handprints on the telescope from some of the spacewalkers who repaired it. And John Grunsfeld, who's the last astronaut on a spacewalk to touch Hubble, he actually took this picture of some of those hand marks as he was leaving Hubble for the final time. So these are places where somebody's glove scuffed the shiny outside of Hubble just a little bit. And then the harsh environment of space bombarded by energy from the sun weathered that scuff mark a little differently than the shiny bit. And so you now have these black scuff marks that show you where spacewalkers have been as they worked to keep Hubble going all these years. So just to let everybody know, I'm gonna do a little Q&A with Dr. Sullivan. So let me start off. Um, Dr. Sullivan, you wrote in your book about how your first full-time job after getting your PhD at age 26 was NASA astronaut. So can you elaborate on how that actually transpired, how you found out that NASA was looking for women and minorities back for the 1978 class? Sure, and again, I, just so you get the sense of the structure of the book, I, I tell you sort of my whole life story as a means of bringing this Hubble story into the foreground. So. Uh, you'll, you'll get some of this and a little more color around it uh, if you pick up the book and give it a read. Um, I was in graduate school becoming an oceanographer, uh, and I was in graduate school in Canada, so you know, NASA, needless to say, was not advertising in Canada for astronauts. So it wasn't, I wasn't hearing anything or paying any attention really to the space shuttle until I went home for Christmas vacation in, uh, it must have been 1976. Uh, my older brother is actually the real flying nut in the family, and he had been tracking it all avidly. So I'm home for a week or so in December of 1976 in California, and he starts telling me all about it and encouraging me to apply because NASA seems to be really serious about wanting scientists and astronauts and, and women. And, you know, how many 26-year-old PhDs can there be in the world? You're about to be one. And my first reaction was that that was nonsense because I was doing the geology of the deep seafloor in the Atlantic Ocean. And that's hard enough through 12,000 feet of water. You don't need to add another 200 miles to the challenge. Uh, so I, I completely dismissed him and you know, teased at him and went back to Canada to pick up my studies again. Somewhere along the way, I, I must have seen one of NASA's own advertisements in a science journal. And when I looked at that, uh, it clicked differently. Then I, I turned it the other way around. And I thought, this is not about being an oceanographer from a spaceship. These guys are basically building a research ship. And instead of doing research missions out in the deep blue sea, it's going to be research missions in or from space. And they need people who can be a combination of the scientific party or proxies for the scientists and engineers whose cargo is in the back, and partly ship's engineer. Well, that was exactly the role I loved the most on all the 
ocean expeditions I had done since my fourth year of university. So when I looked at it in that light, go be a member of the crew of this crazy new vehicle that's going to do all sorts of interesting operations and research in and from space, then it made a lot more sense to me. And so I threw my hat in the ring. Another part in your book you wrote about being a bit disappointed after you became an astronaut and you were assigned by NASA as mission manager at NASA's high altitude research <coughs> aircraft. But as a part of that task, you flew in the same pressure suits that the four shuttle test flight crews wore, and you became the first woman that the Air Force certified to fly in a pressure suit. So do you think in retrospect that having that job actually gave you sort of a head start to being picked as the first U.S. female spacewalker? Well, one of the biggest mysteries of being an astronaut, and I think it's still true to this day, is that none of us had any clue what any of the actual plans and dynamics about us was. It was not a high information environment, to put it that way. So, I mean, it seemed, it seemed to us that if you got an assignment, our, our first support assignments, if your first support assignment had something to do with one of the first four flights, we all sort of suspected that that's probably better. You're, you're working with the superstars of the astronaut office, John Young and Bob Crippen and Dick Truly, and they'll get to see what you can do. And it can't, it, it's got to help that the, the whiz kids, the astronaut office, get to see you in action and you know, maybe give you a good mark somewhere. That's got to be a sign that you're moving fast. And I had, my first assignment was something like that. It was a very unsexy thing of helping refine the checklists that were going to be used on the first couple flights. It was not really my cup of tea. I, I didn't know my way around at all at that time. I don't think, I think I did a pretty ratty job of it actually. Uh, and I really wasn't terribly happy with that assignment. So when I got tapped to shift gears and go to this aircraft assignment, part of me was really happy. It was more active and operational and doing something. Part of me worried that maybe I was being demoted or that it was a, a black mark because I had not covered myself with glory on the checklist assignment. So you just have to, all those thoughts may go through your mind. No one's gonna tell you what it means or, or tell you what it signifies. So Marcy, for all I know, it's possible that the, the key influencer in these early assignments, it's possible that that guy kind of had an outline in his mind when he picked us about which of the six of us gals is likely to be the first pick. And it, he might've had it then, he might've formulated it along the way. Something I did might have made a difference, positive or negative. You, no way of knowing. So your, your choice is either spend a lot of time fretting about something that you're never going to certainly understand or just carry, you know, carry on, just keep doing the best you can do at every job you've got and take it from there. And actually, all of the first female astronauts in your class wanted to be number one, but Sailor Ride got that honor. And can you discuss what it was like in terms of the media attention for Sally and how all the other women dealt with that aspect of being a trailblazing woman astronaut? Yeah, it's, you know, everyone in our class had been a top one percenter, commonly always succeeded at everything they did, commonly finished first if there was any kind of competition. And now suddenly you take 35 of those people who had been, you know, a big fish in their own little pond. They're now all in the same pond for many people and a lot, there were a lot of different instances where suddenly you didn't get the first pick for probably the first time in your life. I think we all, all six of us would have been happy to fly first. I'm sure we all were confident we could handle going first. Sally was certainly one of the, I, I would say probably the, probably the strongest, uh, certainly the most competitive personality wise uh, of the six of us and un, you know unequivocally, technically superb. But yeah, you know, Right after that happens, there's Sally Ride and everybody else kind of, you know, fades in the media world. I, uh, I teased Sally a little bit on that at one point when we were assigned to fly together because it, it started to be the case if you were traveling around together uh, and they spotted there's astronauts over there, they'd come up and grab one of you and say, it, is Sally Ride here? And you, you get a feeling that the only reason I exist is to tell you I'm not Sally Ride and she's over there. Uh, and of course, we never, you know, Sally wasn't carrying publicity, so I never blew her cover. Yeah, she, I'd point them the other direction or say, I don't think she's here. But we have name tags on our suits that, as we were training, usually just had our first name on them. And to pull Sally's chain at one point, 
I, I had a name tag got made up that instead of instead of saying Kathy, said Sally, but on top of Sally there was a horizontal bar, and anyone who knows Boolean algebra, computer algebra, knows that if you when you're doing logic operations like and or or, if you write the word and and put a bar over it, it means not and. If you write the word or with a bar over it, it means not or. And so my name tag explicitly meant not Sally, because it seemed that was my only, my only meaning, my only value was at the moment that I'm not Sally. Uh, she, she was, I, she got the joke and she, I think she sort of figured it was more clever than my usual jokes, but she was not amused. <laughs> uh, on your first mission, when you became the first US woman spacewalker, you wrote in your book about working in such a hostile environment outside of your suit, but yet you felt at ease. How did you accomplish that, getting that kind of a comfortable feeling in that kind of environment? Um, yeah, I, th I think it's partly something that I built in baby steps from, uh, from my youth. I was always a, an adventurous kid. Uh, and my, both my parents were really good at making us partners in any learning adventures that they were on. So I'd grown up around you know, small boats, driving small boats for my dad, flying small airplanes with my dad. Uh, and just becoming familiar with how things work and, and increasingly confident in my ability to figure out how things work and master the operating of them. Just you know, learning and learning and growing and growing and refining your skills. By the time you're slipping outside of the spacecraft in a spacesuit, you've, you've spent hundreds of hours in spacesuits, uh, working in them, moving in them, putting them on, taking them off. I mean, they're, they're really super completely familiar to you. Um, how all the hardware in the back works, how the computer on your chest lets you operate and, and troubleshoot anything that's going wrong on the back. And it's, so it's, you're basically flying your own solo spaceship that happens to be shaped like your body. Uh, and that just was something I was always curious about and interested in and comfortable doing is learning how to do those things so I could go do some other useful work, not just for the doing of it. So by the time we slipped outside in a spacesuit, I, sort of completely focused on the, the engineering task we were going out to do, not you know frantic about where am I and what's going on. And I've had that same experience on the several times I've gone deep in the ocean in submersibles. I pay attention to the engineering. I learn what I need to learn about how it works and what safety things I might have to do to back it up. And, and then I'm just fascinated with the world outside. And of course, uh, the Soviet Union, once they learned that uh, you were gonna be doing that spacewalk, and that Sally Ride would be on her second mission to space. They made sure to have uh, female cosmonaut Svetlana Savitskaya go up so she could be the first female spacewalker uh, to beat you and also to be the first woman to fly in space twice. So at the time, did it cause some disappointment for you? And, and also uh, later on in life, did you ever get to meet Savitskaya or any other woman cosmonauts? Yeah, it, it really didn't disappoint me. I mean, you know, your first spacewalk is your first spacewalk. And however many people have done one before you or what their gender was or what their skin color was, if any of that really matters to you, you probably should not be doing that spacewalk. Uh, you're, you're, not, you're, you're not thinking about it the right way. So, uh, I mean, I, and as I describe in the book, there was a wave of excitement around the Johnson Space Center that Sally would be the first to go twice and I would be the first to spacewalk and, I mean, Sally and I knew right away we were going to be second. You, just, you weren't paying attention to Soviet-American relationships and their fierce coveting of space first. So yeah, we, we knew that wasn't going to happen. Uh, so Svetlana getting to go first doesn't bother me. Uh, people are always asking me, what's it like to be the first woman to do a spacewalk? I honestly don't know how to answer that question. I can tell you what it's like to do a spacewalk for the first time. What that was and meant to me and, and how it challenged me or drew me was any different than it would have been for a man or a person of color. I don't even have any idea how to answer that question. Um, your first is your first. And it's a momentous, it's a momentous thing and a challenge that deserves your full attention and that you should take great satisfaction in no matter how, how many people did it before you. And yes, later in 1985, I did have a chance to meet Svetlana at a big space conference in uh, Stockholm and in 1987 at another big space conference in Moscow I had a chance to meet Valentina Tereshkova. 
Excellent. Yeah, I met Tara Shakova hmm, several years ago in New York City, New Jersey area. Unfortunately, she didn't speak any English, so no. I told her about our museum, but that's about all it went. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so now if we go back to the main focus of your book, of course, uh, which was about Hubble Space Telescope, can you explain how you and other astronauts would actually train for the spacewalks uh, in order to do the servicing, uh, you know, by all the different astronaut crews that came later? Yeah, so it builds on the same pattern that I described in my talk. Uh, underwater facilities where you can, you can immerse full-scale mock-ups of the shuttle and the telescope. And between the pictures that I showed you and the servicing mission, a, a very large tank was built in Houston that is big enough to have the cargo bay of the shuttle and, and you could stack a telescope, the Hubble telescope in there. It has a working robotic arm, uh, which when we were training, the, the robotic arm we had underwater could not actually drive around like the real robotic arm. You needed scuba divers to sort of swim it around. That kept getting improved because NASA could see the challenges of Hubble were coming and the challenges of space station were coming and astronauts were going to need to be able to practice the astronauts doing the spacewalk and the astronaut driving the robotic arm were going to need to be able to practice together, like a full spacewalk together. So you needed to build that capacity in the water tank. And then another thing, and I, I don't talk about this in the book, but as we were finishing up our training and getting ready to fly, um, again, this is 1989, 1990, computers, the internet, simulation were moving ahead rapidly. Virtual, even 3D rendering, uh, like you see in computer games today was not what it is now. But you could tell virtual reality is going to come along and virtual reality is going to be a really valuable training aid, especially for space station assembly crews and Hubble crews. Because I could take the astronaut who's going to be in, still inside the shuttle driving that arm around. I could put a VR goggle on him or her. I could put a VR goggle on you. You're going to be the spacewalker outside. And you can sit side by side in a room on the ground and each be seeing and feeling and touching what you would be touching when you worked together in orbit. And in fact, if I needed to, I could pop your eyes into my field of view and basically show you, you know, here's what I'm seeing and, and help solve all those communication issues and really refine the coordination. So Bruce and I made sure that we got all the digital data from Lockheed Martin that would make it possible to render Hubble that way. So you do the choreography like I showed you. We've got the cargo bay laid out like this. We have the telescope here. You're gonna go over here and get this. I'm gonna go here and do that. Cause you wanna get the timeline down. You wanna know how much time each thing takes and you wanna to practice to shrink that timeline and be really efficient about it. We had the telescope. So to really get the feel of how does this tool work on that connector, on that bolt, we could go out to Hubble and do that. Every crew after us didn't, did not have Hubble. And so another big battle, which we, we won the first rounds of and got things started, was um, the Goddard Space Flight Center, which was going to be in charge of Hubble servicing. You need to build totally high fidelity mock-ups and, and electrical mock-ups of the Hubble, because the guys who are going to go up and take out a computer or change out batteries, they, they need to have something that's as accurate as the Hubble itself. And you've got to build a dry land trainer that basically is Hubble. Uh, it, size, feel, shape, markings, everything. And then you just practice, go back and forth between practicing on the, the dry land particulars and the fine details and going back to the timeline and the choreography and just keep going back and forth over and over again. The space shuttle will be celebrating 40 years in April since its first launch back in 1981. I wonder if you can describe for folks what it's like to be on the inside of the shuttle and launching into space. It, it's a pretty wild ride. You, are, you feel like you're embedded in a ball of energy that's going somewhere really dramatically. It's uh, the first two and a quarter minutes of a space shuttle launch were, were very percussive. The solid rockets burned very turbulently. So you, 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 feel, you feel a bit of sway when the main engines start and then you feel a sort of an abrupt push when the solid rockets fire and then you're being shaken uh, and it's loud and your, the, your seat back is being pushed into your back. It's not crushing. Uh, you've all felt the, same, the kind of acceleration we felt on the space shuttle somewhere along the way. Could be 
could be in a really fast car if you punched off a stoplight sometime or a roller coaster, but you never felt it go on for eight and a half minutes. That's, that's pretty impressive. So you're accelerating the whole time for eight and a half minutes. When the solid rockets burn out, which is about two and a quarter minutes, they drop away. Uh, and then you're just riding the liquid main engines. They are very smooth. So it's suddenly like you're on the world's smoothest, smoothest electric train. Your seat back is still pushing in your back. You're still accelerating, but the, sh the shake, rattle, and roll has stopped. It's a little less loud because uh, all the vibration of the solid rockets transmit through all the metal. Uh, and even though you, you have a helmet on and you're inside a crew module and that's inside the skin of the shuttle and it's still loud. You know, when you did the testing at Marshall Space Flight Center uh, in the underwater mock-ups there, whatever happened to those mock-ups of Hubble? Did you find out in your research for the book, whatever happened to those? Well, one of, one of the Hubble mock-ups, one that's called the structural test article, which was, it was not ever used in the pool. Um, that's on display at the National Air and Space Museum. It's been in one of the big atria in the downtown location for years. Uh, that building is undergoing a lot of renovation, so I'm not sure quite where it is at the moment, but I'm, I'm sure it will be back in one of the big galleries. Um, many of the mock-ups that we trained on underwater carried over uh, and were kept for the servicing mission crews. And of course, you're refined and repaired in years after we finished so that they would keep meeting the needs of the, the new crews as they came along. Given your recent underwater adventure uh, last summer, I wonder if you can describe uh, which has the better view. So that would be going underwater or up in space and uh, how similar are those kind of missions in nature? And will this be in a new chapter for a later edition of your book? <laughs> Well, one of the similarities is, is something you touched on to be you inside some carefully engineered craft, a space shuttle or a space suit or a submersible. In the case of the submersible, dress like I'm dressed here, uh, and yet looking out some viewport at this completely exotic and otherwise lethal environment. I don't know what has always fascinated me about how, how can I feel so normal sitting here and, and be looking right out at that, that incredibly exotic, marvelous, and fatal lethal environment. So that's kind of similar. Um, getting to the bottom of the deep sea is not an explosive event. It's a very smooth elevator ride. Take a submarine that would happily sit on the surface, you put some extra weight on it and it will just descend slowly through the water column. And when you wanna come back home, you drop that weight and you just rise slowly through the water column. If you're, if you're going for the view, you have, a, you have a big expansive view out the window of a spaceship from low earth orbit, like shuttle altitudes, you're probably seeing a thousand miles in any direction. When you go deep into the ocean, uh, you can, you'll only see as far as the lights that you brought with you allow. And, and that's typically maybe 30 feet. But anywhere you go in the ocean, you will see life all around you. It might just be a little you know, microscopic or miniature uh, tinophores and comb jellies or bits of bioluminescence. Uh, but even on the, you know, even seven miles down at the bottom of the Challenger Deep, you know, there are, um, there are amphipods, there are bristle worms, there are sea cucumbers, they're all invertebrates. There are not fish or cephalopods uh, that far down or a couple of kilometers, a couple of miles deeper than those tend to go. Uh, but the, the ocean, the ocean is alive everywhere, which is a marvel in its own right. So. I'm delighted I didn't have to pick either or, and I've gotten to do both in the course of my career. And by the way, if you, the, the standard trick of oceanographers is to uh, take a styrofoam cup or a styrofoam wig head and write something or draw something on it, hang it, leave it on the outside of your submersible as you go down and come back. And uh, you know, styrofoam is basically frothy plastic. It's more air than, than solid plastic. And so the confining hydrostatic pressure of the deep sea just squeezes equally all around and you come back with something like that. And a new chapter for the book? Uh, yeah, well, we'll see if a second edition comes out. Maybe we'll add something a little different or, uh, I mean, there, we've certainly gotten a lot of podcasts and articles and, and other uh, media out there about the dive. And Victor Vescovo's team has written a book about yeah, the submersible I went down into was funded and, and designed, commissioned by a Texas financier named Victor Viscovo. 
in 2019, he took it to the deepest point in every one of the five major oceans of the world. And then in 2020, invited me and some other notables to uh, be part of some of his ongoing science expeditions. So there's a, a, a book that's come out recently describing the process of basically imagining, well, why can't you go to the deepest point in the ocean whenever you want to? And instead of saying, oh, well, because you can't, saying, well, couldn't you? Is it really impossible? And just keeping on with that until this submersible was built and the surface ship that carries it around. Uh, and, and, you know, the first dives to the bottom of the Challenger Deep was in 1960. The second dive to the bottom of the Challenger Deep was in 2012, 52 years from the first dive to the second dive. Both of those submersibles suffered enough damage that they were never dived to that depth again. I went out to sea for 10 days with Victor Vescovo and we, we did three dives to the bottom of the Challenger Deep in seven days. The ship came back to port and exchanged some personnel, went back out and did it again. So that difference, two dives in 52 years, three dives per week, whenever you want to, you know, if you tr translate that to space, that would be like saying, we have weekly flights to the moon. It's a radical transformation in our ability to access the deepest parts of the sea. Kind of like uh, SpaceX and reusing rockets and having that first stage come back and setting it back up. Yeah, yeah a bit like that. One last question for you. So I've, I've spoken to a lot of different later female astronauts and uh, a lot of them have cited uh, your first group of women astronauts in 1978 as role models early in their lives. So I'd just like to end with a question for maybe some younger audience folks. What kind of advice do you have for kids who are interested in getting involved in science or some way in this space program as a career? I would say a couple things. Uh, one is it, it really can obviously help if you can see someone who is like you or looks like you or comes from a background like yours who's succeeded at doing that. It's, you know, it's a nice confirmation, sort of a confidence booster that it's possible for someone like me to do that. But be careful that you don't take that too far and come to the conclusion that if I can't see it, I can't be it. Because plenty of people have done something for the first time, that you know, the first man, the first woman, the first, so don't let that be a barrier, that you can only follow people who look like you. And another version of that is, I've always felt that I can, I can learn things and take notes from anybody, whether they look like me or not. I mean, I'm just not gonna believe that I'm not allowed to take any lessons about courage from Nelson Mandela because he's male and black-skinned and I'm female and white-skinned. You bet I'm gonna study someone like Nelson Mandela and learn some things about courage or you know, who gives you some inspiration about artistry or perseverance or overcoming challenge. That Those people don't have to look like you. So you've got role models all around you that might not look like you. And it might just be one little thing they've done that you recognize some strength or some courage or some integrity or some grace in how they took that moment, you know, file that away. That's, that's a little micro mentorship. That's a little micro role model. And you accumulate a lot of those, you'll be amazed at how much it can help you figure out your life and, and overcome your challenges. The other thing I would say is some people are, some people take more naturally to science or math. It seems to come more easily to them. Some people take more easily to music or, drawing and painting than I do. It's, it's right, I think it's right to say, I'm gonna build on my strengths. So if you've got one of those strengths, build on it. But shore up your weaknesses, because even if you're not naturally brilliant at piano or math, with practice, you can become much better than you would have been otherwise. Uh, and so if, if you're passionate about space and really wanna do it and just like hate the math teacher and it's just not, you can settle for that. And if you settle for that, the door will probably close and not open for you. Or you can work on building up that muscle and get that door open. I think we're kind of running up against the time, but All I right. do want to hold up the great book, Handprints on Hubble. Thank you for that plug. <laughs> Glad you enjoyed it. Excellent book. I have lots of notes, as you can see on the side here. Oh, super. <laughs> I do active reading when I read these things. I want to thank you, Marcy. I want to thank Logan Berry and uh, everyone who joined us tonight. Great fun chatting with you all. And I hope the rest of your evening is a delight. Thanks again, Dr. Sullivan. Appreciate it. Thank you.
Loganberry Books is open to the public Tuesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. You can order books from us at store.loganberrybooks.com. You can also order from us by calling the store directly at 216-795-9800 or by emailing books at logan.com with your specific requests. You can support us by purchasing through our affiliate pages on bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash Loganberry Books at loganberry.papertrail.com for digital ebooks or on libro.fm for all your audiobook needs. Join our listener support program where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month, less than $12 a year, to keep this podcast going. Go to our website at loganberrybooks.com. Check our social media at Loganberry Books and make sure to rate and subscribe to Lines from Loganberry and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Lines from Loganberry was produced and edited by Ted Hubish. As always, tune in next week for more bookish content from Loganberry Books. Thank you for listening. <laughs>